This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you could have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. This episode is brought in part to you by Audible, your go-to destination for thrilling audio entertainment. Whether you're looking for a hair-raising experience to enjoy while you're on the move or eager to dive into sinister and shocking tales, Audible has an exclusive collection of thrillers from best-selling authors that will keep you on the edge of your seat. Like James Patterson's first audio-only thriller, The Coldest Case. Experience stories like never before, where every chilling detail is brought to life by captivating sound design. Plus, as an Audible member, choose one title a month to make yours forever. And now, new members can try Audible free for 30 days. Just visit audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. That's audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. I'm Gail King. The promise of justice for all is based on a revolutionary American idea that the law should protect everyone equally. But justice for all is still an unfulfilled promise because of racism and bigotry that stands in the way of a more perfect union. In few places is that reach wider than between people of color and the police. Now the nation is engaged in a very difficult conversation on race, sparked by a series of events that began in February. By now, we all know the stories. Ahmad Arbery was jogging near his Georgia neighborhood when chased by three white men who believed that he had been trespassing. He was shot and killed. March, Kentucky. Breonna Taylor, an EMT, died moments after police used a battering ram to break into her own apartment to search for drugs. Her boyfriend shot at who he believed were intruders. Police fired back and killed Taylor. No drugs were found there. In April, a CDC review found black Americans who made up 18% of the population they studied represented a third of hospitalizations for COVID-19. By May, the U.S. Labor Department reported that one in six black workers were laid me was locked down. And on Memorial Day, right here in New York City, in Central Park, a white woman had a minor dispute with a black man who was bird watching. Video of her call to police saying she felt threatened went viral. Hours later in Minneapolis, George Floyd, say his name, was killed by police. The horrific image, and horrific is the word, of a white cop's knee on a black man's neck turned a tinderbox into a bonfire. Today, funeral services Floyd in his hometown of Houston, Texas. A horse-drawn carriage brought Floyd's casket to the cemetery where he was buried next to his mother. In street protests that are going on right now as we speak here in New York City and around kitchen tables, many are asking this question. How do we achieve justice for all? Well, we're going to examine that tonight, and we begin with CBS News correspondent Jeff Pegues. He's in Minneapolis. 
the Twin Cities where two men and two worlds collided. Minneapolis is consistently ranked one of the most livable cities in the country. But underneath what was branded as Minnesota Nice, there was tension. A city divided along racial lines with conflicts between the men and women in blue and communities of color. Are they protecting and serving in this neighborhood? No. Former Ohio State basketball player P.J. Hill was born and raised here. Like Dr. Martin Luther King said, injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere. He says George Floyd's murder is why he is now an activist. Have you been stopped by police personally? Yes. How many times? <sighs> Countless. I can't even count. African Americans make up only 20% of the population, yet they account for nearly 60% of use of force incidents at the hands of police. No justice, no peace! George Floyd's death transformed smoldering frustration into a burning fury. The police precinct where the four officers worked was consumed. as was the nightclub where Floyd once worked security. We met owner Maya Santa Maria outside what was left. So this is the uh, epicenter. How would you describe your interactions with him personally? He was that guy that you walk in and he had this big smile and he would just call me boss lady. He'd say, how you doing boss lady? How are you tonight? Derek Chauvin was also working at the Latin club, went off duty. He worked outside. Co-worker David Penny told us Floyd and Chauvin had a history. What kind of history? They bumped heads. Um, and it has a lot to do with, with uh, Derek being uh, extremely aggressive within the club with some of the Patriots, which, is, which was an issue. Is there any doubt in your mind that Derek Chauvin knew George Floyd? No, he knew him. How well did he know him? I would say pretty well. Floyd, six foot four and 223 pounds, was known affectionately as Big Floyd. He grew up in one of Houston's poorest and most segregated neighborhoods. By all accounts, he was a happy kid. He played football. That's him, number 88, catching the pass. And he was an accomplished basketball player. He was a monster on the court, but in life, in general, a gentle giant. Thelonious Floyd says his older brother George was always the center of attention. Man, when I tell you, he lights up a room, man. Oh, is that right? Big guy, friendly guy, tell you anything you want to know. Floyd moved to Minneapolis five years ago for a change of scenery and to be closer to some of his friends. Derek Chauvin grew up just outside the Twin Cities and trained as a cook. He served two stints in the U.S. Army before settling in Oakdale, a mostly white suburb. He joined the Minneapolis Police Department 19 years ago. During that time, he was involved in at least two shootings, including one fatal incident in 2006 with a man who allegedly had a gun. Chauvin was exonerated in both cases. Police records show 17 complaints against him, but he was cleared in 16 of the cases. He also received two letters of reprimand derailed his career. Do you think Derek had a problem with black people? I think he was afraid and intimidated. 
On Memorial Day, the police were sent to this corner store after a customer passed a phony $20 bill to pay for cigarettes. That customer was allegedly George Floyd. According to the criminal complaint, officers on the scene pulled Floyd out of his Mercedes SUV, handcuffed him, sidewalk. He can be seen in this video sitting calmly on the ground. A few minutes later, Officer Derek Chauvin arrives on the scene. But at that point, there is a gap in the video until we see Floyd on the ground. I will. And that fatal knee pressed into Floyd's neck for eight minutes and 46 seconds. Were you surprised when you saw Officer Chauvin pressing his knee into George Floyd's neck? I was not surprised when I initially saw his knee on his neck, to be honest. Why not? Because I've seen Chauvin do stuff uh, along those lines. What surprised me was that he didn't stop right away once George was obviously, you know, saying, okay, okay. He knew that he was pretty much finished. Is it possible that Chauvin knew exactly who George Floyd was and that this was personal in some ways? I would think it was personal. You think it was? I think it was. The image of Minneapolis that people across the country have seen, is it accurate? It's an accurate snapshot. Alan Page, the Hall of Fame, former defensive tackle for the Minnesota Vikings and former state Supreme Court justice, acknowledges that the city he loves has a race problem. Page has an extensive personal collection of slavery artifacts, a daily reminder of a nation's tortured history of racism. The question really is, I think, whether we will ever change. George Floyd! George Floyd! You and I and each one of the people watching this I don't know. I am hopeful. I get my hope from young people. The events in Minneapolis and the protests that followed have sparked some very difficult conversations about race. So we turn to two leading scholars and best-selling authors who have written extensively about race in America. Ibram Kendi is of Boston University, and Robin DiAngelo is from Washington University in Seattle. Ibram, what is the question you think white people should be asking? I I think if white people claim they are anti-racist, then they should be asking questions like, why is it that unarmed black people are being killed by police, but but armed white people are being arrested? Why is it that that black people are disproportionately dying of COVID-19? Why is there a growing racial wealth gap in this country? And, And to me, if you answer, well, because there's something wrong with black people, then you're answering with a racist idea. I would urge white Americans to remove the claim, I'm not racist, from our vocabularies. What are some of the excuses that you've heard when people say, I'm not racist because? Well, I've been to Costa Rica. I'm a vegetarian. I'm from Canada. Uh, I had a black roommate in college. 
I was a minority in Japan, so I know what it means to be black. It just goes on and on, and it's. it's I saw something in your book that said, I marched in the 60s. I marched My cousin is married to a black man. Yeah. Most black people I know, myself included, are hearing from their white friends who are asking for guidance about what they should do. How can they be better? Um, Is that fair? I think people, they, they don't have to go to that proximate black friend in order to for that black person to teach them about racism because first and foremost not every black person is an expert on racism very fair point just because you're a person of color does not mean you're an expert on that topic i offer white people this opening question if their number one question is what do i do and that is how have you managed to be a full functioning adult in 2020 and not know what to do they're asking the question at this particular time because we just saw the very horrible murder of a black man in a very graphic way at the hands of a police officer is that the point well how many times have we seen a very graphic horrible murder at the hands of a police officer Uh, How many times have we reacted uh, when Colin Kaepernick respectfully went down on one knee? Did we ask, uh, help me understand why he would do that? Or did we attack him uh, and invalidate him? And did he lose his job for that? What about family members? You know, it often comes up at the family dinner table. Everybody has an uncle fill in the blank. I think most white Americans can relate to that family dinner when Uncle Bob says five people just cringe, but nobody says anything. Uh, Why would interrupting Uncle Bob's racism ruin your dinner and not interrupting his racism not ruin your dinner? Let me just say, Gail, when I was diagnosed with cancer, that hurt. It hurt me deeply. And and I suspect when someone is diagnosed with, with being racist, it hurts them deeply. But I think they can trust the person who's giving them the diagnosis, someone who studies racism or a loved one, to say, I'm giving you this diagnosis because I want you to get better. Do you think racism can be eliminated, Dr. D'Angelo? I don't believe it'll be eliminated in my lifetime, but niceness will not end racism. Only strategic, intentional, anti-racist action will end racism. I believe that it will be one day. And, and I in your I, lifetime, I don't know about my lifetime. Um, I'm hoping my daughter's lifetime. But I think it's critical for us to, to recognize that the way we eliminate racism is by eliminating racial inequity and injustice. And we can change policies just like we can change people, just like we can change people in positions of power. And, and I think it's critically important for people to realize that, that change is possible if we are willing to fight for it. Many of us know the names, the faces, and the places. Michael Brown, Ferguson, Eric Garner, New York, Breonna Taylor, Louisville, Minneapolis. But the sobering list of black people killed by police officers is so much longer than that. And it includes a young man named Dan Roy D. Ten years ago, we lost our son in the street, um, handcuffed. And here we are ten years later, George Floyd dies in the street being handcuffed. And it's, it's heartbreaking to see that nothing has changed. Dan and Angela Henry never imagined what would happen to their oldest son. We sent him off to college to play football. And he never came home. I first talked with them two years ago. Brother! 
This was the last game the Henrys would watch their son play. DJ was a junior playing football for Pace University in New York. A joy, a Pied Piper in the neighborhood. All of the kids loved him. Hours of October 17, 2010, they were startled awake with the devastating news that their 20-year-old son was shot to death in his car. I remember just falling to my knees. And I said, who would shoot him? Dan called the police and says he was floored by what he says he was told, that DJ was trying to run over a police officer. That officer had to shoot him to stop him. Something had to have happened if that happened. Like, wh what caused him to do something that's so outside of his character? DJ was out celebrating at a sports bar with his teammates when other patrons got into a fight. Police say that DJ was parked in a fire lane out front, and when he was asked to move, he sped towards Officer Aaron Hess, propelling him on the hood, and police say forcing him to shoot DJ. The effort clearly was to villainize our son. It was to make him seem like a criminal thug that needed to be stopped. This is police dash cam video. On the right is Officer Hess. Behind him is DJ lying in the road. We were in the wild, wild west. That's what it felt like. Desmond Hines is one of DJ's friends who was in the car that night. He says that Hess began shooting at them unprovoked. We weren't doing anything wrong. They shot him, took him out of his car, handcuffed him, made him stand up, and then laid him on the ground and left him there by himself as he died alone with his hands cuffed behind his back. In a deposition, Officer Hess maintained he thought his life was in danger when he made the split-second decision to shoot into the car. I only reacted to what I thought, that I was going to be killed. He insisted that race was not a factor. He claimed he couldn't see through the windshield. I saw the silhouette. I didn't physically see a driver. He presented himself as a person who was utterly reckless in that moment. Whether he did that because DJ was black and DJ's friends were black, we don't know. Charged with any crime. And his union later named him Officer of the Year. They said the award wasn't meant to be public. They wanted to do that privately to boost Aaron Hess's morale. To boost the officers? Because he had morale. been through a lot. Because he had been through a lot. Where are the two of you in terms of process 10 years later? In some ways, it's the day. There are moments when it feels as if I've just received a phone call that our son has been killed, and that's painful. It's an unfillable hole. It's mm -hmm. unfortunate now the Floyd family will begin that, you know, the realization of that journey as we have. Does it feel any different in this George Floyd situation or are they all the same? I think this one feels different. We've seen peaceful protests in every state in this country. We've seen people come together in other countries. I think the fact that his death was caught on film. Bro, he has more people enraged and has opened their eyes. If anything positive comes out of our forced quarantine and COVID-19, hopefully it's made people think about humanity mm -hmm. and what it means to be a part of a civil society. In spite of their pain, the Henrys are proactive. 
Dan plans to testify before a Congress to push for laws that hold police more accountable. And their hopes lie with the next generation of young people, like their two other kids, Kyle and Amber, DJ's younger siblings. Now as they've gotten older, they're able to verbalize more how they've been hurt from losing their brother. Yeah, they're marching uh, with Danny's name. They're speaking at protests. And we say to them, in some ways, their lives are lived in protest. Oh, people are mad. We're, we're angry. Uh, their anger is no different than our anger. Look, we sit at the dinner table now to an empty place setting. That's our reality, and it's been our reality for the last 10 years. There is a family joke that you're not a Cooper until you've been arrested at a protest. Christian Cooper and his sister Melody have been marching against injustice since before they were old enough to walk. My mother would show up to protest with me and Chris in a stroller. But they never imagined how cell phone video of a tense encounter would sweep them up in a national crisis. It happened just hours before George Floyd died. Sir, I'm asking you to stop recording. Please don't come close to me. Christian, a 57-year-old Harvard-educated science editor, was birdwatching in a wooded area of New York's Central Park called The Ramble when he encountered a woman whose dog was loose. I said, excuse me, ma'am, but dogs leash at all times. And she said, well, the dog runs are closed. What made you pull out the phone and start recording it? Well, that's a little bit of the irony. It had nothing to do with race. It was just a conflict between a dog walker and a birder. Please don't come close to me. Please, please call the cops. I'm going to tell them there's an African-American man threatening my life. She basically pulled the pin on the race grenade and tried to lob it at me. She says, though, at one point that you said to her, look, if you're going to do what you want, I'm going to do what I want, and you're not going to like it. That's absolutely true. He says he only planned to offer a treat to the dog to get the owner to leash it. It's an old bird watcher's trick that dog owners tend to resent. I'm sorry, I'm in a ramble. At the point that she makes that phone call, it's very clear that, you know, there is no physical threat to her at all. It's the iPhone and the dog treats. But Christian Cooper says the woman, coincidentally named Amy Cooper, knew exactly what to say to get police to respond. There is an African-American man. I am in He is recording me and threatening myself and my dog. She was going to tap into a deep, deep, dark vein of racism, of racial bias that runs through this country and has for centuries. I'm sorry, I can't hear you. I'm being threatened by a man in the ramble. Please send the cops immediately. By the time police arrived, Christian and Amy both had gone. All I could think of was the police arriving and throwing him to the ground and putting him in a chokehold. Melody, a writer, was stunned and put the video on Twitter. Why did you think we all needed to see what had happened to your brother? Please don't come close to me. I had seen videos like this before. I'm through with it. I'm through with the weaponization of white women's tears. And there's a history of it from Emmett Till, which we all know. Emmett Till was a 14-year-old savagely murdered in Mississippi back in 1955 after he whistled at a white woman. But she testified in court that he grabbed her and made sexual advances. There's a history of white women falsely accusing black men. And it hit home. It struck a chord for me to see my own brother put through that. 
Decades after the Emmett Till murder, the Coopers say many black people in America still tiptoe through daily life. There's a reason why I've never worn contact lenses. What do you mean? Because people react differently to a black man who wears little round nerdy eyeglasses and to one who doesn't. Really? Oh. Honestly, I never thought about that. Yeah. Amy Cooper was fired from her financial services job. She released a written apology to Christian, which reads in part, I hope that a few mortifying seconds in a lifetime of 40 years will not define me in his eyes. I don't know whether she's a racist or not. I don't know her life. I don't know how she lives it. That act was unmistakably racist, even right. if she didn't realize it in the moment. I'm not sure someone's life should buy 60 seconds of poor judgment. Melody? Well, I disagree with Chris. I think that he's very much taking the higher road. His point of view is a little bit different than mine. Either way, Melody believes defeating racism in America requires everyone to play a part. If you're in the office and you hear someone making a racist comment, call it out. This is personal. This is why Eric Adams knows what it's like to be young and black in America and have a run-in with the police. It took eight minutes and 46 seconds in Minneapolis to have it all come flooding back. When you first saw the video of the cop on George Floyd, I went through a state of almost reliving what happened to me uh, close to 40-plus years ago. 15 years old in New York City, Adam says he and his brother were arrested for trespassing, taken to the police station. And out of nowhere, they say you feel like a beatdown. And assaulted. They intentionally opened our legs and just repeatedly kicked us all night. Every time I heard a police every time I saw a police car go by, and I relived that beating. That beating changed his life. Now, there's a lot of new training going on. He didn't grow up to hate cops. He grew up to become one. Why would I be joining the force that had some member of it kick the hell out of me? Because you're going in with a mission and an obligation. If we really want to not have a person put their Floyd, then we need to be the officers on the street to stop it, to identify it, and fight to change it. He spent 22 years as a cop in New York City, making captain before winning a race for the state Senate. You need masks, ladies? How you doing? He's now the Brooklyn Borough president, so busy, he's sleeping in his office. Is there racism in the New York Police Department? Alive and well and healthy... And if we don't, it always will be in police departments across America. That's what Eric Adams saw, watching Derek Chauvin. I saw a sense of power that is only built into the fabric of law enforcement in our country. A sense of impunity. He could hang out in broad daylight, hands in his pocket, knowing cell phones were everywhere, with almost a bemused look on his face. Right, it was clear comfort. Just a sense of, this is, I have the power. When you saw the officer on the neck of George Floyd. Absolutely disgusting. Terrence Monahan is the chief of department of the NYPD, its highest ranking uniformed officer. Is there racism in the NYPD? Is there racism in society? 
Yes, there are racisms everywhere. Is the NYPD a racist police department, which you hear people chanting in the streets? Absolutely not. But 38 years with the NYPD, Monaghan acknowledges that cops, like everyone else, have biases. After Eric Garner's death, choked and restrained by cops, arresting him for selling cigarettes illegally, another man whose last words were, I can't breathe, the city brought in anti-bias trainers. Can you train the bias out of any police department? Training is good. I believe in training, but it has to be much more than just training. Any police department has to be able to teach their police officers to become part of their communities. Because if a police officer or a police department walks in at us, it's going to have biases. Like to see national policing standards. Take chokeholds. Prohibited in many places for years, Minneapolis just banned them four days ago. Procedures and policies implemented that outlaw chokeholds. I think this is very important. should have been done a long time ago. Requirement for officers to report on fellow officers' inappropriate conduct. should have been done a long time ago. Which is why Adams says the arrest of the other cops who confronted George Floyd with Derek Chauvin is real and meaningful change, whether they were complicit by action or complicit by silence. The message is clear now. You are your brother's keeper. If he does the act, you are now being held accountable also. If we don't change the profession of law enforcement in this moment, failed George Floyd, we have failed everybody who's hurting right now. Social psychologist Philip Batiba Goff has devoted his life to this change. A professor at John Jay College of Criminal Justice in New York, he also runs the Center for Policing Equity that trains officers nationwide. This is use of force across 12 cities. We collaborate to make law enforcement less deadly and less racist. Departments that brought Goff's group in to train cops, Minneapolis, four years ago. The program was mandatory. Goff says he doesn't know if Chauvin attended, but says some officers clearly didn't want to be there. Sit in the back, arms crossed, not paying attention. There was a culture, not the whole department, but a subculture. It was all just BS. You didn't need to treat people, right? You needed to crack skulls, because that's the only thing these animals understand, a thing I heard. It's that toxic culture, says Goff, that most needs to change. We all know that culture eats policy for breakfast, lunch, and dinner. So if you can change the culture, you wouldn't need the, the, the training nearly as much. There's a culture that doesn't care. Their jobs are secure. They think that tough is more important than fair and just. In the last week, New Yorkers have seen images like this. A woman protesting in Brooklyn, violently thrown to the ground by a cop. The officer was later arrested for assault and pled not guilty. Not long after that incident... There is not a police officer over here that thinks Minnesota was justified. We stand with you. Monaghan, feeling the tension between police and protesters citywide, took a knee. I bet my need to hopefully send a message throughout this city and this country that this shouldn't be a war between people who want justice for George Floyd and law enforcement around this country. Thank you for supporting us. Not every protester was buying it. There is a way in which they're saying, you know, this take a knee thing is like a feel-good moment, but 10 minutes later, these guys are busting our heads, and they don't buy it. 
But I like that that moment was genuine. We've seen officers kneel and chiefs cry. And that's not nothing. But it's not what we're waiting for. Philip Petibagoff is sure that George Floyd's death won't produce the last calls for change in America. Sad, but sure. I know there will be a next body. And a next. In these spaces, the only way to, to the light is through a pile of bodies. In just the last few days, a number of cities have announced an unprecedented steps towards reform. The mayors of Los Angeles and New York City plan to cut millions from their police budgets and move the money to social services. The majority of the Minneapolis City Council has pledged to dismantle its police department without even giving details on what would replace it. An idea like that would have not have been taken seriously before the protests that have swept the nation. And to be honest, many people still think that is a crazy idea. We asked Eureka Duncan to find out more about the young Americans demanding immediate change. What do we want? They come by the thousands, every color and creed. The people united will never be defeated. Every generation and gender. People act like we, we need a list of demands. We need to know what we want. Y'all! Each one has a story to tell. This story belongs to a 24-year-old from Atlantic City named Genesis Hart. I've been out here every day that we've had protests in New York City, doing a little bit of first aid. Sanitizer, first aid, voter registration. I've been on the front lines doing chants, make sure people are keeping safe. This is essential work right now. <laughs> what brings you out to these protests? Why are you protesting? And why now? I feel like it is a part of my humanity to be out here, especially as a black woman. Um, I'm also a target. day that we're out here, there is a high certainty that people could get arrested. I understand that risk every time I walk out of the house. This is New York, but this same scene is playing out in more than 700 American cities and D.C., Philadelphia, Seattle, and Marshall, Michigan. The majority of protests have been peaceful, but there have been flashes of looting and violence. There are people in the group, uh, sometimes I slip through, that are agitators. We can't control that group of people, unfortunately. We recognize them and we separate ourselves from them. I was out here for four hours and 50 minutes and 47 seconds. I rode 36 miles from Brooklyn all the way up here. This is not her first call to action. I just love life and love to just express. An aspiring artist and actress, Genesis also has a day job. It is definitely exhausting, but it's worth it. It's just like clocking into another job as soon as I leave here, going straight to the protests and doing service there as well. Black Lives Matter! Black Lives Matter! 
Black Lives Matter are seen and heard everywhere. The message isn't new, but now the messengers are more diverse. All types of people from every walk of life I've seen out here fighting for one thing that we all deserve is to live. All of these protests have started off peaceful. And it seems like as soon as night falls, the police officers get a little bit more agitated and things do escalate very quickly. Genesis says she saw that escalation up close. They were pushing a lot of people around. I came closer to her court. And I was down. face was bloody. Um, she's bleeding. And I have a scar here. It's a constant reminder of how they see me. But it also is something that empowers me to keep pushing. We want, we want justice. justice. People will look at people like you and so it's a bunch of young us. It's our duty as the next generation to push for what we want. We are to inherit this earth. We might as well step up and take it. There is a long parade of 50 or more police cars following the group that just left here. The curfew time is now official. Bikes in the front! Allies to the front! People on the bikes need to be in the front. We have our allies and everyone else locking arms right now. We're safer together. The police just cut us off. We're surrounded. Stay with each other. Right now, we have the power. What do we want? Justice! his life he is calling out for his mama and every mother heard him we hear him we did hear we heard him. george floyd we hear him kariatu diallo was pained when she heard about the death of george floyd as the mother of amadou diallo having to suffer my loss on february 4th 1999 my wound was open again on a busy corner of the Bronx, a street sign signals a story from another time, one that shook New York to its core. My son was a dreamer, and he always dreamt of going to the U.S. and getting a computer degree. From Guinea on Africa's west coast, Kariatu packed up her firstborn son, Amadou, and sent him to follow his dreams. Amadou, at the age of 21, came to America, crossed the ocean, and he was doing everything right. Renting a modest apartment, working where he could. The last time we spoke was on January 31st, 1999. They said, Mom, I'm so happy. He said, I have finally saved enough money and I'm going to college. And he was so proud of himself. Absolutely. Four days later, Kariatu's phone rang again. It was a relative. They said it was shooting, and then they say it was by the police. I dropped the phone. Police said they were searching for a rape suspect and came upon Diallo, 
Thinking he was reaching for a gun, they opened fire. Four white officers. Guys, anyone like to make a statement here? Five foot six, 150 pound Amadou, 41 shots. Turns out he was unarmed. He was reaching for a wallet. The problem was reaching for a gun is a perception. They saw this black man in the vestibule. He had no criminal record. He never even had a traffic ticket in New York City. Retelling this story today is breaking my heart. Yeah, I'm sure. Because Amadou was this young, generous person. When you see him, when you have chance to meet my child... Mrs. Diallo, I'm so sorry. It's breaking all of our hearts hearing this story again. All I wanted to do was to cross the ocean and come to New York City to let the world know who my son was. I was calling him name because I'm coming, but yet he's not there. So I entered the vestibule and I saw all these bullet holes. 19 of those bullets hit Amadou. And I went into his apartment. I picked up his clothes and I just brought it to my face to smell him. My child was no longer there. All four police officers were charged with second-degree murder. But a year later, a jury found them not guilty. Police have not been held accountable for many deaths that people believe. Time and time again. Now, as many grieve George Floyd and demand justice, Kadiatu wonders, 21 years after Amadou was gunned down, is this really a transformative moment? I really pray and hope that is the case because we are tired. We are exhausted. Gail, I went to so many funerals. It has grown into Kadiatu's lifelong mission, a plea for her son Amadou, rooted in his dreams of America. From my heart to the law enforcement community, I want them to really learn how to see our children that they look at them and see them as beautiful children. How about seeing them as human beings? See them as human beings. Let, let them live. Democrats and Republicans have come together before on criminal justice reform. Can the death of George Floyd bring them together again? It was the police-involved deaths of other black men in 2014 that led the Obama administration to more closely monitor police departments in dozens of cities, including Baltimore and Cleveland. Vanita Gupta ran the Justice Department's Civil Rights Division in the later years of Obama's second term. You were part of an administration that could have done more, right? I was serving the administration when there was a full Republican Congress that basically obstructed almost everything. We did a lot by executive action. When you do it that way, it is very prone to being able to be undone. That's precisely what happened. After the 2016 election, President Trump's Justice Department drastically cut back on monitoring police departments accused of excessive force or civil rights violations. When you see these thugs being thrown into the back of a paddy wagon, you just see them thrown in, rough. I said, please don't be too nice. 
Mr. Trump was convinced in 2018 by fellow Republicans, like Utah Senator Mike Lee, to support a bipartisan revamp of sentencing and federal prison laws. His support was absolutely indispensable toward getting it passed. Do you get a sense that he'd be willing to try doing something like that again? Yes, absolutely I do. But in recent days, it was Democrats who unveiled ambitious plans, such as a national use of force standard. These are reforms that even a few weeks ago were unthinkable in Congress. Attorney General Bill Barr opposes at least one Democratic idea, making it easier to sue officers for using excessive force. I don't think you need to reduce immunity uh, to, to go after the bad cops, because that would result certainly in, in police pulling back. How can you apply national standards to, to 18,000 different jurisdictions? The U.S. Constitution applies to every single person in every single community in this country. But we have to fundamentally recognize, of course, that policing is inherently local. It's not our decision up front to decide police protocol and policy for every police department in the country, but we can lead by example. It's impossible to watch that video and to hear accounts of other experiences like that one without walking away saying, something's got to change. And now the world is watching. Agreement is hard enough in Washington, we know that. So add this to the mix. A presidential election at a time when the nation is more politically divided than it has been in decades. That said, we're all going to the polls in November. We asked the White House for an interview for this broadcast. They declined. But CBS Evening News anchor Nora O'Donnell spoke with Joe Biden. He's a presumptive Democratic nominee for president. Yesterday, they met in Houston, where Biden paid his respects to George Floyd's family. Do you believe there is systemic racism in law enforcement? Absolutely. But it's not just in law enforcement. It's across the board. It's in housing. It's in education. It's in everything we do. It's real. It's genuine. It's serious. Look, not all law enforcement officers are racist. My Lord, there's some really good, good cops out there. But the way in which it works right now, we've seen too many examples of it. Do you support defunding the police? No, I don't support defunding the police. I support conditioning federal aid to police based on whether or not they meet certain basic standards of decency and honorableness. In fact, are able to demonstrate they can protect the community and everybody in the community. Does it hurt Democrats' cause if there are some in your party that are saying defund the police? The president is suggesting that shows Democrats are weak in terms the of law. The president order. has no credibility on anything. He lies. He's the first person anyone can think of in modern history who's taken regular military officers and had them move against peaceful demonstrators causing four former chiefs of staff to say, this guy's bad, this guy's wrong, he should just stop. Let's talk about the new proposal that the Democrats in Congress have just proposed. Let me go through some of the elements of that bill and ask whether, yes or no, you support them. Lynching as a federal hate crime. Yes, it should be a federal hate crime. Creating a national police misconduct registry. Yes, but as I understand the registry, the police have a requirement to where there's use of force against an individual and or a police officer, it gets reported to the Department of Justice, so there's an ongoing file. As you know, the cop who allegedly killed George Floyd had some 18 or so uh, complaints against That's him. That's the example of what I'm talking Shouldn't about. Shouldn't that information be public? Yes, it should. And do you support a federal ban on chokeholds? Absolutely, positively. 
you know, I'm, I'm asking about this because many people are looking at what has happened to George Floyd and said, where's the change? Where's the policy? What specifically, as President of the United States, will you do to end systemic racism? Oh, well, I tell you what, I've laid out a whole plan to how I would do that. Number one, you have to start off by insisting that the police departments meet a national standard of what constitutes policing that is appropriate. And all police departments are going to have to adopt it. We'll put together a commission to do that. Secondly, we have to make sure that you have police officers who, in fact, when they act inappropriately, are, in fact, not only fired, but held accountable if it's a criminal offense and be held accountable for that offense. Thirdly, we have to, in my view, change the way the entire criminal justice system functions and the prison system. It should turn into a rehabilitation system, not into just punishment. You're here in Houston to meet with George Floyd's family. What did you say to his family? Jill and I talked to him about uh, it's hard enough to grieve, but it's much harder to do it in public. It's much harder with the whole world watching. We're an incredible family. His little daughter was there. The one who said, Daddy's going to change the world. And I think her daddy is going to change the world. I think what's happened here is one of those great inflection points in American history, for real, in terms of civil liberties, civil rights, and, and just treating people with dignity. Why do you think George Floyd's death is a wake-up call for this nation? When people saw George's face being pushed against with his nose almost being broken and being held up for eight minutes and 42 seconds, whatever it was exactly, they said, oh, my God, this is happening. And all the people coming forward. But you know what they told me? They told me how they were encouraged by the fact that the, the protest here in Texas and other places, all the young white men and women marching with young black and men and women, almost as many, it's going to change. There's hope. They have hope. Are you ready for an all-new season of Survivor? You better be, because Survivor 46 is here, and it's 90 minutes of twists and turns you don't want to miss. Better yet, after each episode, there's a brand new episode of On Fire, the only official Survivor podcast. Each week, we go behind the scenes of the episode's biggest moments, taking you into the how and the why things happened. And this season, we're very lucky to be joined by an expert, the winner of Survivor 45, Devaya Daris. What is up? I'm thrilled to be joining this team and to be giving you my take on how and the why players made the moves they did, what it takes to outwit, outplay, and outlast, and to ask Jeff some questions because... Even after 26 days out there, there is still a lot for me to uncover. Bring it, D. Listen to On Fire, the official Survivor podcast, wherever you get your podcasts. 